Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Thanks so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. Today we're going to talk about minimum wage silliness in the Democrats, Trump's strategy versus Iran's aggression with Claire Lopez joining us online, and last, Islamic aggression in America. And finally, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello again, and thanks so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. Democrat debates coming up starting tomorrow night. Ten Democrat presidential candidates on the stage tomorrow, Wednesday, the very next evening, Thursday, another ten. All of them, I'm going to guess, are going to, if they're asked the right question, are going to say, yes, they support a mandated increase in minimum wage. And this is why I wanted to share this particular story in today's first five. In New York City, there is a bookstore chain. It's called Book Culture. It's a four location independent bookseller in New York City, prides itself on being liberal. They love to tell people they are the uh, progressive bookstore. Well, they had an announcement recently, this progressive bookstore, that they've run into financial troubles. And they went through, they lamented, uh, the four stores are in danger of closing soon, saying they need financial assistance or investment on an interim basis to help us find our footing. This is the owner speaking to a news uh, outlet, Chris Dublin. He said, in the last 30 months, the payroll costs for book culture have risen by 50%, and it's been difficult to adapt quickly enough. So you might ask yourself, well, why would in New York City the payroll costs go up so quickly in the last 30 months, 50% in the last 30 months? Turns out it's the New York City minimum wage law. law. So he, actually the owner of the store, blamed payroll cost increases on the city's minimum wage raise, which he says increased hourly wages for his employees from $10 per hour to $15.25 since December of 2016. This forced him to initiate layoffs and to do a corporate reorganizing. But being a good liberal he is, he didn't say, and therefore, why don't we get rid of minimum wage increases because it's hurting my business, it's hurting, he had to lay people off. So instead of the solution of saying, you know, why don't you let the free market set the wage rate, his solution is, first of all, he's looking for investors. He actually thinks someone is going to invest in this losing proposition of a bookstore that can't meet payroll. He wants at least 500000 so half a million dollars, preferably three quarters or even a million, um, invested or loaned to him. And he's suggesting his solution is he wants New York City to immediately guarantee a bank loan to him for this purpose. And again... I raise this story to say minimum wage economics, free market economics are not things you can toy with and tinker with like, you know, changing the speed limit in, uh, in a particular jurisdiction or changing a tax rate. Economics are based on in invisible laws that you cannot change. Saying you want to have everything stay the same and everything be fine, but you want to raise minimum wage of $15 is kind of like saying, 
I would like to have pass a law that water will no longer freeze until it gets to 50 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. I don't like that water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. I want to freeze at 50 below zero. It doesn't make any difference what you want. You can't make economic laws. You can't bend them to make the outcome that you want. And my friends, the Democrat presidential candidates who are going to be on stage tomorrow night and Thursday night, I'm going to tell you, if they don't say it tomorrow, they'll say it sometime. In fact, almost all of them have said they support a forced increase in minimum wage. And as we talk about in the show many times, nothing in the economy happens in a vacuum. If you force a business owner like this happy bookstore owner in New York City to raise minimum wage, so he's now paying the same people who used to pay $10 an hour, now he's paying $15 an hour, he has to make adjustments. So he's had to lay off workers, the same workers the minimum wage advocates say they're trying to help. If he's forced to continue paying this, of course what happens is other employees who used to earn $10 an hour because they were more experienced, they were more valuable to him, they're gonna say, hey, bookstore owner, these newbies are getting $10 who used to get 10, now getting 15, so I ought to get 20. And the raise in wages will, will, will permeate like a ripple through the entire company and through the entire economy. And businesses can not simply absorb the loss of that money. So they in turn are going to have to raise the prices of the product or service they sell. And when they do that, the same person who used to earn $10 an hour and now earns $15 an hour is going to have no significant change in terms of his buying power, in terms of what he can do with the money he earns because the entire system adjusted for the forced increase in minimum wage. Little economics lesson, no charge here, but I'm telling you folks, when politicians tell you that they're running on increasing minimum wage, they're telling you they either think you're stupid and you're gonna buy this and you think that this is how economics work or they're not very bright and they really shouldn't be running for president. I'm Debbie Georgiatis, that is today's First Five. And as I mentioned before we got started today, uh, at the beginning we have uh, coming up in this segment, we have Clara Lopez joining us online. Clara's been on the show quite a few times. We're gonna talk about the situation in Iran. You obviously, most of America's been following this news that Iran, the country of Iran, shot down an American drone, unmanned drone, and we have much increased tensions now with Iran over this. This happened, I think it was June 20th. Uh, yep, June 20th. And uh, so we've had a variety of things happen since then. And we also have had, in addition to all the back and forth between America and Iran, we've had, of course, commentators weighing in, talking about how this is, uh, you know, all of this happened because Donald Trump messed up, or all this happened because Donald Trump withdrew from the uh, JCP, the Iran deal. So I want to have Claire Lopez, who is, uh, as you all know, if you've listened to our show before, she's the vice president for research and analysis at the Center for Security Policy. But she's also a nationally recognized expert on national security, especially as it relates to Iran. She's a former CIA, formerly with the CIA. She is with uh, all these serious conservative think tanks. Reach out to her. She's she uh, speaks nationally and all you know all sorts of news shows, news outlets, and in, in congressional testimony about Iran and the complexities of dealing with Iran and the mullahs in Iran. So I hope my wonderful Matt, producer Matt, we have Claire online. And there she is. Hi. Yes, hello. Yes, hi, Debbie. Very glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. 
Hi, Claire. Love having you uh, every time. Thank you so much for joining me. I know you just, uh, you, I'm sure you're very busy these days with all the news uh, uh, in this country dealing with Iran. But let me, go ahead. No, I'm, I was just going to agree with you. Yes, it, it's been pretty much nonstop um, since I got back from a lovely, wonderful 10-day trip to Israel, uh, end of May into the beginning of June. You know, I saw that you'd been to Israel, and I actually saw on the Center for Security Policy website you did at least some presentation about what happened in Israel. I love Israel. Yesterday, I actually was uh, did a lot of the show um, about Israel, and I want to maybe another time I'll have you come back and hopefully and talk about your Israel trip because we uh, we're big supporters of Israel, but I really want to hit on Iran. So. You had a piece up at Center for Security Policy essentially saying the United States response to Iranian aggression must be swift and firm. First, just tell me, why is that the best answer to this kind of aggression by Iran of shooting down the the drone, being firm and swift? Why do you say that? Well, because the Iranian regime um, has been uh, hit so hard by sanctions and its financial situation is really, really shaky right now. They are not able to pay salaries of the IRGC, that's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, and, and, and others. They have not been able to pay the kind of uh, funding that they used to, go, uh, to give uh, to their uh, Islamic terror uh, proxies like Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, and then, of course, with this week's new sanctions by President Donald Trump, uh, specifically against the supreme leader, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, <clears throat> he uh, is now not able to access the billions and billions and billions of funds that he has stolen uh, from the Iranian people and stashed away in banks all over the world, anywhere from uh, Switzerland to the Cayman Islands to who knows where, um, and also hit with those kinds of sanctions some of the top leadership of the IRGC. All of this to say... Uh, that the regime is in a very, very precarious position right now. And not only that, but its own people. The Iranian people are in the streets, have been for well over a year, demonstrating, protesting, going on labor strikes. And by the way, things that I'm hearing very recently, um, there, there are people in Iran who are on, uh, they are murdering mullahs. They are going and finding imams and wow. mullahs and they're murdering them. Um, this this is going on. So all of this, uh, by way of the backdrop, to say that because the regime feels itself in such a precarious, fragile position, it is lashing out. And the lashing out began first with attacking um, oil shipping in the uh, Persian Gulf and, and at the very critical Strait of Hormuz, entry to the Persian Gulf, um, damaging uh, several vessels belonging to Norway, to Japan, to the Saudis, uh, I think also to the Emiratis. And uh, it ramped up, and it ramped up, and it ramped up. And finally, they took a pot shot at one of our drones maybe a couple of weeks ago and missed, but, but we know they shot at it. And then, of course, the actual targeting and shoot down of an American drone in international waters um, near the Strait of Hormuz. So, the, 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 the activity, the lashing out, the frustration, um, the desperation of this Tehran regime right now is ratcheting up. And with each new ratchet, if you will, upward, uh, the, the threat uh, to not just American but, but to other allied 
forces in the region, international shipping, freedom of navigation of the seas in the region becomes more and more threatened. And it is not going to stop. Uh, the Iranian regime is not going to stop until it is stopped. Uh, the desperation that they're feeling is, is very obvious. Uh, but their, their response to that, to that financial pressure uh, that the Trump administration has been placing on them has been to lash out uh, kinetically. And I think we also need to be paying attention to its terror proxies, as I mentioned before, like Hamas, like Hezbollah, uh, and of course the Houthis in Yemen who have already attacked uh, the Saudi uh, pipeline pumping stations uh, inside Saudi Arabia. So, long way of saying uh, that, that unless and until we take steps that are very visible, yes, the cyber attacks were important and necessary and a very good step, and the Iranians know exactly uh, who it was that hit them with those cyber attacks, all good. Uh, but unless there is a visible response uh, to, to attacks like the one that took down our drone, the attacks will continue. They may anyway. They may. Anyway, I, you know, I'm going to go back. Uh, and Claire, you've been on the show so many times, and I'm so grateful for that because you really uh, have a, just a fount of knowledge about Iranian history, about Islamic ideology, about the behavior of the mullahs. I want to back up to just uh, 10 steps back. All of the effort in this, uh, in this discussion, uh, it, we began with the whole idea of having the Iranian deal and trying to prevent the, the Iranians from acquiring nuclear weapons and, and developing uh, their materials with the goal of eventually having nuclear weapons. I wanted to just have you as, your, as your, your knowledge of the arena, of the history, of the Islamic ideology. The reason that America right now is so concerned about what Iran is, would do if they did have access to this money, if they did develop nuclear weapons, is because the regime itself is, in a, is a very intentional, uh, embraced and supportive of conquest Islam, is an, is an aggressor in terms of wanting to push Islamic ideology. I just want to have you give a little bit of the Islam sure. is a terror exporting country and that matters. It's why it matters so much how, whether we enable them or stop them. Right. And this is something that I think we in the West find difficult to understand. Yes. I think perhaps even our leadership, um, our, our national security leadership uh, and even the White House and National Security Council have a tough time uh, grasping uh, w what I'm going to tell you, and that is that the regime in Tehran, um, yes, they're corrupt to the core. Uh, yes, they have stolen billions of dollars. Yes, they like to hang on to power and, and, and expand that power. All that, yes, yes, yes. But at the bottom of it, at the core of it, that leadership, now not all the people, and certainly not even all the rank and file of uh, the, the regime itself, be they officials or military or anything else. Uh, but they do not all follow this and believe this, but the leadership does. And what I'm talking about is look at the Iranian constitution. It's in English. It's online. And what it says is that this Iranian regime, which came to power in 1979 with the Ayatollah Khomeini in a jihad revolution, exists, and it says this in the Constitution, it exists in order to fight jihad to establish a global Islamic state under rule of Islamic law. That's their Constitution. And it says also in the Constitution that the IRGC, the Pazdaran, 
uh, is constituted as an ideological army whose duty is not just to protect the borders of Iran, but to spread the ideology of jihad, Islam, and Sharia around the entire world. That is what their, what their constitution says. And by the way, they follow their constitution. So this gets at, at what you're asking there, Debbie, which is absolutely, they are true believers. They are faithful, well, somewhat faithful, devout, uh, practicing Muslims. At least insofar as jihad goes, they are faithful, devout, and practicing. I can't swear to all the rest of it um, as to their behavior, which, as I've said before, is thoroughly corrupt. The people are fed up with it, and they know about it, and they're, they're disgusted by it all. But when we're talking about jihad, they're true believers. And this is what we have to understand is coming against us. And it's not the kind of a mentality that can be reasoned with in a, in, a, in a logical Western way of, of discussion, as, for example, if you would just change your behavior and become a normal functioning state, then we, the West, we, the United States, will help you to develop your economy, bring it back uh, up again, et cetera. That, that, that those arguments don't carry weight when you're talking about true believers in Shiite eschatology, the return of the 12th Imam, the Mahdi, the end of times, day of judgment, and all of that, which most Americans, uh, we, we, their eyes would glaze over. But this is what they believe in. And that's, that's why we have to take seriously um, this regime, which is not just guided by pure, practical, pragmatic, uh, geostrategic considerations that we might consider when, when we formulate our national security policy. It's, it's a lot more than that. That is exactly what I want to get to because I do hear people, you know, come person on the street and also just, just people who don't really like the idea of America being getting close to war. This is sounding warlike and can't we back off? Can't we reason with the Iranians? Can't we find some common ground? And I do believe that many Americans, they, they are tired of having troops in the Middle East and they're tired of the potential of war and they don't want to see another potentially hostile situation continue to develop. And so they think, well, maybe if uh, Trump, President Trump or uh, America or the West generally would reason with Iran, would, be, would talk with them, that somehow we can get past this. But what you're saying, which is exactly what I hoped you'd hit on, because I've heard you describe it before, is you have to understand who and what Iran is so that it becomes obvious there is no negotiation to get them around to a reasoned position. Um, and and some, so great. Well, go ahead. I can hear you say something else. Well, what I, what I was going to say is that we're being offered by the media and also by the Iranian intelligence operations, false propaganda, yes. information operations, NIAC, National Iranian American Congre uh, Congress Council, I'm sorry, National Iranian American Council, NIAC, uh, and all the propaganda arm of the Iranian Intelligence Service, the MOIS, or uh, Ministry of Intelligence and Security, offering this totally false a choice between either we can lay off, back off, uh, just just play nice, uh, or we have to go to all-out war, and it's it, it's going to be full-on war, World War Three or four, whatever we're at at this point. Um, and that's a false choice. It is not at all. Look, for example, at what Israel is and has been doing up on the Golan Heights in what used to be called yep. Syria. Um, they conduct very hard-hitting strikes up in those areas. Uh, on a rather constant basis, every other week, 
Whenever, for example, um, they detect that uh, the Iranians are moving high-tech um, uh, uh, weaponry to uh, to uh, the Damascus regime or to uh, Hezbollah, for example, um, you know, GPS and, and precision guidance um, technology for missiles, that sort of thing, or the missiles themselves. When they detect that, what do they do? They don't back off and say, well, if you will just talk to us nicely, we'll, we'll, we'll deal. No, they don't say, can we please have more negotiations, please? No, they strike. They hit them, and they've been doing this over and over and over again for at least the last couple of years. Is that full-on warfare? No, it's not. But it is absolutely um, an immediate and hard-hitting strike whenever they detect something that would would, uh, endanger Israeli national security and the security of the Israeli people. Uh, They don't hesitate. It is a limited strike, usually. It is a, a precision strike. Uh, any who are killed in the process of that strike very likely are uh, either Damascus regime personnel, officials from Iran itself, the Pazdaran or IRGC, Quds Force, uh, or Hezbollah, or mix of the above. Um, we're not talking about poor little goat herders. Uh, we're, right. we're talking about uh, bad guys. Now, that doesn't mean all-out war, does it? And they've been doing this, like I said, for, for years. I think we could learn something from that style of, of uh, ensuring um, that the Iranian regime knows we will not put up with provocation, with aggression and belligerence. I love that. And it's interesting you happened to mention, I had actually brought an article to talk with you about. There is a Georgetown professor, uh, Trita Parsi, who is speaking on behalf, <laughs> yeah, you know, speaking on behalf of the National Israeli American Council. And essentially her piece, and so she's obviously being given he, credit. It's a he. Oh, is, is he. Okay, sorry, thanks. He is being given credit for a knowledgeable person, and he's a spokesman for the National Iranian American Council, essentially saying that President Trump, referring to President Trump's new sanctions as tariffs, saying that doing this is a miscalculation, it's a dangerous thing to do. This is the Iranian, speaking on behalf of the Iranian government, mullahs, trying to make it undermine the, the confidence in the American people in the actions that Trump is taking. Yeah, absolutely. Trita Parsi, um, and his organization that he founded, NIAC, National Iranian American Council, um, yeah. that, that is one of uh, the prime assets of the Tehran regime in America for information, influence operations, a.k.a. propaganda. If you yeah. hear NIAC, if you hear Trita Parsi, you know that you are hearing from the Iranian regime in Tehran. That is is good to know. Okay, let me uh, switch uh, topics quickly to uh, the National Security Advisor, John Bolton. He's sure been taking a lot of criticism about he's too much of a hawk and President Trump shouldn't be listening to him. What's your sense of how uh, National Security Advisor Bolton has handled this whole situation with Iran? Oh, Ambassador John Bolton um, was one of the most um, valuable personnel appointments that this President Trump has has made to date uh, to be his National Security Advisor at the National Security Council. Um, Ambassador Bolton knows Iran very well. He knows Iranians. He has uh, championed the Iranian people for literally decades. And here's here's another point I would make, and it's good you bring up Ambassador Bolton, because I agree with him completely. What has to happen next in Iran uh, is up to the Iranian people. But we have to support them, back them, um, and, and let them know that we stand with them. 
Now, an earlier president of ours made that promise, as I recall, <laughs> that we will stand with the Iranian people as they stand for their own liberty yeah. in one of his um, yeah. State of the Union addresses to Congress. But then we never did, did we? We never did. But this is what we have to make good on now. Um, the, the people in Iran are at the point, especially the young people, where they are just absolutely fed up with this regime. As I've said, they're in the streets, they're demonstrating they want nothing more than to be rid of this regime and to have a regime that is actually representative of them and, and, and their dreams and their hopes for their families and future. So this is what Ambassador Bolton has championed for years, that the Iranian people need to be helped and empowered, not the Iranian regime, as has been done in certain uh, administrations past, American, um, but the people. Um, and, and, and I think that is where we're going. All of the sanctions and the financial measures that have so debilitated this regime and brought it to the brink of insoluble, insolubility um, is preparation of the environment, as, as they may say in the military. What comes after this has to be regime change. But it's not for us to do. We're Americans. This isn't our country. It's the Iranian people that need to do this, and they want to do it. They just need some help and support from the outside. Some of that support might be open, uh, diplomatic, uh, public, and some of that support probably needs to be uh, not so public. But in any case, um, we should be standing with them now more than ever because the regime is at its weakest right now. It is fragile. It is, it is debilitated. They cannot move money. They cannot pay their people. Now is the time to help the Iranian people to achieve their own liberty. So, Claire, you would agree that President Trump increasing sanctions and particularly targeting these individuals in the Iranian government and freezing their assets, this is one means of helping the Iranian people eventually overthrow their own leader, own government. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, it's been a terrible hardship on the Iranian people themselves as their currency has, has, has lost value and, and, and they uh, are hard-pressed. I mean, to even feed their families. I know that. I understand that. Uh, but, but this is the phase that, that has to be gotten through on the way to regime change. Um, and yes, uh, the president, uh, our president, Trump, is, is on the right track. So is Ambassador Bolton. And so is Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Keep the pressure on. Don't let it up. If they don't have the money to pay their people, their own their own thugs that have kept them in power are going to start drifting away because guess what? Every single one of those members of the IRGC, the Quds Force, the Basij, the, even the intelligence service, they've got families too. And they're facing the hardship because their own salaries are being cut. The thing yep. is that we need to reach out somehow to those members of, of, of the military and so forth um, and, and let them know uh, that we will stand with them when they stand against their own regime. One last thing, and I know uh, we're pushing up against the edge of time that I committed to you, but Representative Ilhan Omar, the Democrat uh, member of Congress in Minnesota, has been very, she's Muslim, she's very forcefully critical of President Trump and many things. She's been critical on this particular thing. She essentially said that the Iranian shot down the drone because President Trump withdrew from the Iranian deal. And she's really blaming the Trump administration, their aggression for having provoked this conduct by the Iranian uh, government. And she's 
essentially, it seems like, supporting the Iranian government. She's sympathizing with them. So are her, con her comments publicly helping or hurting anything? Um, I hope that most people who hear those comments um, understand um, whose side she's on. It's not the side of America. It's not the side of this President Trump and our administration. Um, she openly associates with the Muslim Brotherhood all across the United States. She attends and speaks at events sponsored by CARE, Council on American-Islamic Relations, a Muslim Brotherhood front group, which in fact is Hamas in America doing business as CARE. Um, it's very clear whose side she is on, besides which all of the reporting that has recently come out about her own murky, um, uh, troubled uh, personal situations, which you can all read in the media yourselves, um, really ought to give anyone pause before they listen to a thing that comes out of her mouth. Claire Lopez, it is just a treat every time we ha you're on my show. Thank you so much for joining me. This is Claire Lopez with Center for Security Policy. You can find her writing and videos that she has done, interviews she's done at securefreedom.org. Claire, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Debbie. Glad to be with you always. Love that. I tell you folks, I, when she is, every time she's on the show, I'm thinking, I got to go back and play this later and, and like memorize everything she tells us. She's just so well informed. Well, the last topic for today. I want to turn and talk about, you know, we were just hearing about the Iranian regime, their commitment to uh, be to a, be a jihadist, a, the regime itself in the Constitution is dedicated to the Islamic conquest mission, the conquest mission of jihad engaging in holy war to take over the world, to put in place a caliphate that rules the world, eliminates all other uh governances, the caliphate rules the world under Islamic law called Sharia. This is the mission of the country of Iran. They put it in their constitution. Keep that in mind when I turn to these next stories. We have going to talk about today in the last story for today, a kind of series of stories have to do with the uh, growing um, Islamic aggression in America. And I'm going to tell you about five stories. They all happened in the last couple months. And the reason they are important, number one, because the, are the conduct by the people in America, these are Muslims in America, engaged in some form or other of jihad, of Islamic aggression, of, of conquest Islam, and you barely hear these stories reported in the mainstream media. You barely hear them reported. And when you do hear them reported, they're never put in the context of connecting the ideology of conquest Islam, the ideology you just heard Claire Lopez describe is embraced in the Iranian constitution, the conquest ideology that says the purpose of Islam is to force itself on the rest of the world to use jihad to engage in a, a holy war against the rest of the world to bring a, one caliphate to the world to rule the world. This is actually what Iran thinks. This is actually consistent with Islamic doctrine, consistent with the teachings of Islam. In fact, tomorrow I'll tell you, we, I have a guest coming on, Raymond Ibrahim, who has written, who is a, an extraordinary scholar. He uh, is Middle Eastern, though he grew up in America, um, and he is an extraordinary scholar and wrote a book, Sword and Scimitar, which recounts from the days of the founding of Islam, 
the wars engaged in on behalf of Islamic warriors for the purpose of conquering other countries, other religions, other peoples to force them to convert to Islam since the days of the founding of Islam. The point of his book is what we're seeing today, Islamic aggression, the ISIS warriors, the way Iran behaves. This is just the latest version of the same kind of conduct that has occurred over and over and over and over for, for millennia since the founding of Islam. It is written into the founding doctrines, the founding ideology of Islam that, that devout Muslims must pursue jihad for the purpose. They must pursue holy war. They must engage in it to force, to kill or convert infidels to bring ultimately a caliphate ruling the world. I'm not saying, of course, every Muslim engages in or embraces this or engages in conquest Islam. I'm saying it's what the doctrine teaches, and you'll hear that from him tomorrow. But I want to turn just a, a few instances, a few things that have happened in America, and I want to, to posit that we need to see the connection between the conduct of the Iranian government in funding Hamas, funding Hezbollah. They are funding the jihad through these organizations that I mentioned, Hezbollah, Hamas, and others, because they are part of the mission, the conquest ideology of Islam. Uh, first story to understand is that Islam has, as its rule, as its law, it's called Sharia. Sharia is Islamic law. It is intended by devout Muslims and by the founder of Islam, Muhammad, and by imams and mullahs around the world. It is intended to be forced upon others. It is intended to replace all systems of law. It is intended to be the higher law to replace the law of the country wherever the people are. So let me now hit these stories in America. There, um, in America, we had uh, in a um, mosque in Philadelphia, there was uncovered recently Islamist child bride scandal in Islam. Men can have up to four wives. Men can marry young girls. Muhammad married a six-year-old, consummated the marriage when she was nine. This is occurring in America. There's a mosque in Philadelphia uncovered, fortunately, by the FBI. And this, in this mosque, um, the, uh, it was discovered that the, the um, imam in that mosque was engaged in permitting and facilitating marriage between grown men and very young girls. There was a, a girl who's 14, um, uh, and now, she's now 17, came forward with allegations of sexual assault. Um, but as the, as the FBI began investigating, it, it turns out this mosque has been permitting and engaging in child marriage, and the marriage is being consummated by grown men with young girls. Um, in fact, the girl complaining, who is 17, said this guy she's complaining about was her second marriage because the first one didn't work out. When the FBI begins investigating, they're discovering that actually other Muslims in the community were saying, yeah, we knew something was kind of off over there. Didn't seem quite right. So not every Muslim was in support of this, but no one speaks up except the girl finally came forward and got the FBI investigating. So this is, again, a mosque in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the United States of America, marrying adult men to young girls um, because that is permitted in Islam. This is an example of the Islamist mentality that says, it doesn't matter what your laws say, America. It doesn't matter what your laws say, Pennsylvania. 
Sharia is higher law than any law you have. Sharia permits these marriages. Islamic law, Sharia says it's okay, so therefore it's okay. And they do it in America well aware that it is not permissible in America. But the mindset of the, of the true devout Islamist is Sharia trumps law everywhere. Sharia trumps America's law about marriage age. It trumps the law of the state of Pennsylvania about the marriage age. So this has now been uncovered and is being investigated. Uh, there was a Syrian refugee who actually came to America. And this is a second story. A Syrian refugee came, uh, named Mustafa Musab Alawamar, age 21, came to America as a Syrian refugee in August of 2016. He has been arrested uh, for a terror plot intending to bomb Christian churches in Pittsburgh. It was a Pittsburgh resident, was arrested in terrorism charges, uh, and he said he was doing these attacks on Christian churches in the name of ISIS. So he thought he was negotiating with someone who's going to help him get a hold of weapons to blow up Christian churches um, in Pittsburgh. Fortunately for uh, the churches in Pittsburgh and for America, he was actually talking to undercover agents. But this was an Islamic refugee that met our vetting standards. Let that sink in. An Islamic refugee from Syria who met our vetting standards in August of 2016, so this is still under President Obama's vetting standards, uh, came to America. And he said, as his reason, he wanted to take revenge for our ISIS brothers in Nigeria. And we're not going to go there today on ISIS in Nigeria, but, but I will mention you might have heard or remember we talked about before how, you know, when President Trump came along, he said, you know, we are going to conquer ISIS in the Middle East. The ISIS had begun to develop its caliphate in Iraq and Syria, a growing area, which they are claiming as the as the Quran requires, as, as fundamental Islam, conquest Islam requires to begin to set up a caliphate, a region where Islam is the law, Sharia is the law and Islam governs all. President Trump, with the just determination and fortitude to say we're going to stop these people, you know, did, had a military uh, victory, pretty much surrounded ISIS and brought it down to a tiny little area. I believe they've been finally eradicated. But ISIS isn't gone because ISIS is a mindset. ISIS is a mindset rooted in the teachings of Islam, just like the Iranian constitution that is rooted in the teachings of Islam. ISIS is sprouting up all over the world. And ISIS is engaged in the same kind of conduct as ISIS was in Iraq and Syria all over the world. So this guy met America's refugee standards, or came to America from Syria, and uh, was arrested for allegedly planning to bomb Pittsburgh churches, fortunately got caught. Um, next story, the FBI recently discovered a homegrown Islamic terror compound in Alabama. And I wanna tell this story just to make this point. You see in news stories that people will say, well, you know, this was a lone wolf. This was a not affiliated with ISIS, not affiliated with any known terror group. That is a throwaway, silly point for any reporter to include in the story. The common thread of all of this Islamic jihadist conduct, the common thread is the teachings of Islam. It is what the Quran says to do. It is Sharia. Every sect of Islam embraces Sharia, and Sharia understood to be 
the law that must govern all things, every aspect of life, not just, you know, the parallel to the Ten Commandments or some other religion's teaching. Sharia is overarching. It governs every aspect of human experience. No other law can exist in the same place as Sharia. Sharia is intended to govern over all. So this, whether this Alabama uh, homegrown Islamic terror compound was connected to ISIS or not, or connected to any other terror group or not, is completely irrelevant. What is relevant is right here in this in a small Alabama town in Macon County, an FBI search warrant was executed on property that was a makeshift military-style obstacle course. Uh, the the land where the group gathered looked like an abandoned dump led by Siraj Wahaj. And if you don't remember that name, we talked about him before in this show. I can't even get off on that today because I want to get to my uh, why these matter to you, but. The point is, in Alabama, a training center uh, for, and this was again discovered in May of this year, by the same guy who's been in trouble before uh, in a homegrown Islamic terror compound in Alabama. Last story before we get to our, no, two more stories really quickly. New Jersey woman was arrested for engaging in online efforts to recruit people, recruit terrorists to join ISIS and go over and fight. So she's caught, they arrest her at the airport, she's gonna be detained. She agrees to turn uh, state's evidence, to turn help the government. Uh, instead of you know facing long jail time, she's like, okay, okay, I'll help. So she purportedly was helping the government. You know, she's running these uh, requests to find terrorists and then get turned over the government. Turns out she was a, it's a kind of strange thing to call her, but a double agent. She was faking out the U.S. government, pretending she was cooperating while still actually engaged in online recruitment. Government finally figured it out. She's using different aliases. Now she's in more trouble. But this is a woman in New Jersey that you might see at the grocery store. You might see on your street, walking down the street, a mom at your kid's school engaged in trying to recruit people to go over and fight for ISIS. The last story is in Wisconsin, a resident, Wahiba Dias, pled guilty to attempting to provide material support to ISIS. It was a D Department of Justice press release in April, uh, EV, e referring to evil ideology uh, embraced by Islamic terrorists is not limited to specific geography. ISIS supporters can be found within the borders of the U.S. I can't do the rest of the stories because I will run out of time, but I, the reason I'm doing those stories today is this. We have to connect the dots that the common thread in the conduct of the Iranian government, the conduct of Hezbollah, the conduct of Hamas, the conduct of ISIS, the conduct of the uh, Islamic terrorists around the world who have been killing Christians in, in breathtakingly huge numbers. The common thread is Sharia, the law of Islam. The common thread is Islam. And as strongly as we fight to bring down the Iranian regime, because they are truly engaged in jihad on behalf of their country. We have to be that strong in America, standing up as we recognize, number one, these stories are happening here. And I just gave you a, a sampling. You could read many more if you took time to dive in and, and understand them. But there, it's, it's happening here. It's the same ideology, the same reason to be very, very concerned about the presence of Islamic, um, Islamic fundamentalism in America. It's not really Islamic extremism or, or people deviating from Islam. It is people following the teachings of Islam in America. Not saying every Muslim, but the teachings of Islam itself are being followed right here, and they pose a danger to this precious country, America.
And now I want to turn folks to our uh, why all this matters to you. I do this show every week to talk about why these things matter to you. The Democrats minimum wage follies. The laws of economics are not partisan. They're not changeable. Increasing the minimum wage raises the cost of entry-level jobs, jobs needed by the poor and least employable. So fewer people get hired because you have to pay them more per hour. This raises the cost of employing humans. So more automation, fewer jobs for people. And increasing minimum wage drives up the cost of doing business. So businesses raise their prices for products and services, making life costs more for everyone, including the poor. Raising the minimum wage hurts people who need jobs. Another quick slide on the minimum wage. Politicians who relentlessly push to raise the minimum wage are panderers. They are panderers. They are seeking votes by reinforcing economic ignorance among their voters. Any candidate, think all 20 on the presidential debate stage with the Democrats coming up next couple of days, who calls for increasing minimum wage as a benefit to the poor is either ignorant or shameless. In either case, their policies hurt the people they claim they want to help. On America and Iran, the mainstream media is working very hard to give you the appearance that this is Trump versus Iran, but it is not. Iran's mullahs and their leaders explicitly endorse death to Israel and death to America, and they sought nuclear weapons to advance these goals long before Trump was ever elected. They chanted death to America during the Iranian deal negotiations. The Iranian deal barred inspections of the most likely places Iran would hide its nuclear weapon development. No wonder the Iranians don't like that America withdrew. There are no easy answers, but the blame Trump media is making things worse. On Islamic aggression in America, freedom of religion is a precious heritage of America. We are rightfully protective of that freedom for everyone, but... We cannot fail to connect the dots between the ideology of conquest Islam as the Iranian mullahs push as they wrote in their constitution and the actions of Islamic terrorists in America. Both embrace the common denominator of conquest Islam and the determination to impose Islamic law, Sharia, over all Islamic aggression in America. Last slide, freedom of religion in America. So all sects of Islam embrace Sharia. That is the common thread of every sect of Islam. They embrace Sharia, Islamic law that entirely conflicts with the American idea of the rule of law, the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution. Constitution. Islam is more than a religion. It's also a total ideological system of governance, cultural and individual control that seeks world conquest and domination just like you were hearing from Claire Lopez, they still seek it today. Not every Muslim pursues conquest Islam. Many do not. But in America, there are many Muslims who do work toward conquest Islam. We must not be lulled into complacency or tolerance for it under the banner of protecting freedom of religion. And that, my friends, is my show for today. This is America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Love to have you like this Facebook page, comment, Love to have you review the Facebook page if you're watching me on YouTube. Love to have your, uh, if you subscribe, I would appreciate that. Add your comments. You can email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com and tune in tomorrow and every day, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America and why it matters to you. Talk to you tomorrow. Can we 
talk truth about America. Can you hear-